Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. And I wanted to mention that if you would like to connect with me directly, you can always do so at MarilynBarefoot.com or BreakingBrave.show. I see and answer every single contact personally, and I would truly love to hear from you. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Emily O'Brien is the founder of Comeback Snacks, a gourmet popcorn company designed to give former convicts a second chance. After a series of bad judgment calls that landed Emily in jail, she learned firsthand about the challenges she and her fellow inmates would face in gaining employment once they were released. She started her popcorn business literally from behind bars because it gave her a second chance at life. She wanted to humanize the prison experience and show people that everyone deserves a second chance. She is brave and steadfast in her vision to provide hope to people who feel like it's too late for them. Please welcome the very brave Emily O'Brien. Emily and I met in person, in real life, which is just so exciting, at an event. I don't want to call it a women's empowerment event. It's all these very fabulous chicks who run their own businesses, essentially. And we started talking, and let's call out to Libby Wildman, because she's the one who organized this event, and it's called The Collective. And when I heard Emily's story, I was desperate to have her on Breaking Brave. So welcome, Emily O'Brien, to Breaking Brave. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Thrilled that you're here. Emily is the founder of a company called Comeback Snacks. And Comeback Snacks tagline is popcorn so good it's criminal. And it was because she gave out all kinds of nice samples at the event where we were together. And I managed to eat all of mine plus other people's pretty much during the few hours we had together. Uh, So I am a loyal fan as is anyone who's had a chance to grab a package of these. So Emily, for our audience, can you maybe tell us the story of the Comeback Snacks (laughs) journey? Let's call it a journey, the journey. Let's go there. Of course. Yeah. So it actually kind of started in 2012, 2013. Um, I was living in Toronto, Liberty Village and had my own business. Um, You know, I've always been very entrepreneurial, but I've also gone the academic route as well. You know, kind of one of those people that's very eager to learn and do things that I doesn't matter kind of what it is. Like I I could go on for an hour about like the crazy jobs that I've had, but that's the (laughs) purpose of this. Um, So I was living in Liberty Village and um, running my own company. And there was, you know, some sort of things were really impacting my personal life. So I turned to substances to kind of medicate in that situation. And through my work also, I met someone who was um, allegedly sober. Uh, We became pretty good friends because I was, it had got to the point where I realized that my substances were becoming a problem. And finding and meeting this person through my work was actually pretty comforting. So he was actually, we developed a pretty good relationship. Like I think I knew him for about eight, eight or nine months. And there were some like red flags, but you know, you never see the red flags really till after. Right. You don't want to see them. You don't want to see them. So can I stop you here and let's ask about now that you know what they are, what were the red flags just so people can now understand what they were? Yeah, sure. So I had this company that I had, um, he was actually like a client of ours 
And it turned out that like some of his checks kept bouncing. And then he also said that, you know, he wasn't in a relationship, but then I found out that he actually was still in a relationship. So it became very bizarre to me and I got like really uncomfortable. But then I also believed him that he's like, no, it's like, we, we just like live together, but you know, we're, we're not together. And I'm like, okay. You know? <laughs> he, he had like gotten me to trust him to such a point where it's like, I did believe him, but you know, cause I've heard of those situations happening before. Right. You know? Sure. So, um, and our relationship was like, not even a physical one at all. It was more just like him helping me out with stuff. And he, it was like someone that we like, I don't want to say we loved each other, but we trusted each other. It's hard to explain. <laughs> he was like, he was like a best friend is the way I, I, my research stuck up on my wall. Yeah. That in terms of the way I've heard you describe it in the past was he was a great friend. And, and there was a great bond based on trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we went uh, down to St. Lucia on this trip because he's like, why don't we go on this uh, this trip and I'll help you get away from all this madness that's going on. And I was like, okay, like uh, that'd actually be really nice. And I knew because it wasn't a physical relationship, I wasn't going to have to worry about this weird dynamic, right? It was like, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. I've traveled with people before. It, it wasn't unusual for someone, to, for someone else to book your ticket. And so... He uh, asked me for my passport information and then booked the ticket. And he's like, but we're leaving, you know, in like two days. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, That was another red flag that I learned about later, you know, instantly booking tickets. (laughs) So we go to St. Lucia. First three days are really fun. He wasn't actually sober. He was like drinking on this trip. And on the third day, he tells me that, you know, this trip isn't actually about fun and games and we're here to Bring, bring drugs back into Canada and, you know, that's what we have to do to go home. Okay, whoa. <laughs> so lots of fun, lots of games, beautiful resort, uh, water sports, beach, everything's great, except that, yeah, well, he's not actually sober. Now a switch is flipped and in order to get home, in other words, maybe somebody else paid for these tickets you have to bring drugs back. We, quote unquote, have to bring br- drugs back into Canada. Okay, got that. So let's, h- how did how did that reaction go down for you when that was laid out? It was really shocking, actually, at first. Like, I, I thought it was a joke. I was like, come on, no way, right? Like, <laughs> like, it was almost like, it was, I didn't really believe it at first until I had to get in the car with him and go to this house, right? Uh, it was right. on the Wednesday. And then I'm I'm not even looking around me because I'm, you know, when you know or you think you're in like so much danger and you're looking for any signs to like describe, to try to remember where you are. Yeah. I wasn't looking. I was like, this is a joke. And then we go to this house and it's definitely not a joke. There's bricks and bricks of drugs in the walls. And, and then I get outfitted by this lady um, who's going to make me a custom pair of bike shorts to smuggle drugs in. And she says, thank you to me. She's nice. And I was just blown away. I think I was just in shock. I would have been like, totally. Yeah. Like what is happening? Wake me up. This is a dream, right? Yep. And so that was on the Wednesday and then on the Friday, you know, and then after we got back to the hotel on the Wednesday, uh, that was when I kind of like broke down and I was frightened, but I also didn't know anyone else there. You know, people are like, oh, you should have like called the authorities. And I'm like, I don't, if there's anything that I know about the drug world, it's like that you can't really trust anyone. <laughs> anyone. Yeah. 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 
So, and even if you're in another country, no one can save you. Like it's more risky to try and like blow up some operation when no one is actually there to get you out of the country. Like you just have to get home. Um, right. So. So there was not a thought. I mean, I know your parents based on what you've, you've said in previous interviews, not with me, but in the world, mm-hmm. your parents are going through a very tough time and a tough, messy, yucky divorce. The thought of calling a, a home to them or home to somebody wasn't wasn't a possibility, I guess. Yeah, and like they're already going through so much, and I didn't want to stress them out like even more, right? I thought there was a way that I could just get out of this, and I would never have to involve them. Okay, so this is Wednesday. She, this woman, and Saint Lucia has fitted you. I assume you came away from the house with a custom pair of quote unquote bike shorts that you can use to transport the drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens next? So we actually don't have the, like the first day was the Wednesday, sorry, was just the outfitting because they're not just going to leave drugs with people, right? In a hotel room. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we actually didn't get them. The the Wednesday was just the tailoring. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The tailoring. And then we go back to the resort and that's, um, the next two days were just like when I break down and my drinking is just, I just would drink into oblivion to just try to make the days go by faster. Um, and he tried to convince me that, you know, you know it's going to be fine. I've done it before. And I don't know what was actually true or not. Yeah. But yeah. So on the Friday, that's when we actually had to go back to meet these people. And that when we were outfitted with the stuff and then put on the airplane. But I was sober that morning. So it was an early flight and I'm glad that I was. Yeah. So was he carrying as well? Yeah. Okay. So how much were you carrying? Um, I had just over two and he had about the same amount. Okay. Also tailored for bike shorts in his world. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you get to the airport in St. Lucia wearing your bike shorts, the, each of you, both of you. And and how does this go now? Um, he tells me, that, well, this is like why I'm so careful about like what to say on these platforms. Cause he tells me one thing about getting through security. I don't really know as to, in terms of like what people know there. Right. But I don't, I don't really right. know. Um, anyway, so we, right. we don't have to go through like a body scanner. We just go through this metal detector, right. which I um, don't have metal on me. So um, we get through and then we, you just wait in the land in the area. Right. In the lounge ish. Yeah, yeah. We just get out of the, then we board the plane and it was like the longest and shortest flight of my life. Yeah. Okay. Flying home to Toronto landing. Is that where you were headed? Yes. Okay. So you get off the plane in Toronto. Was there, was there ever a point that you said, no, I'm not doing this. I'm going to go to the bathroom and flush all these things down the toilet on the airplane. Or was there ever a turn back moment? Like once you were on the flight, I guess is the question. So that's actually, I'm glad you asked, um, (laughs) because during the last two days after the Wednesday, I was like, is there any way that I can just, can you just make this easier for me? Because I'm, I'm going to be a terrible liar. And he told me, yeah, you can, you know what? We'll go, we'll go to the bathroom. Like you'll go to the bathroom when we land, put them in your backpack and give them to me and I'll take them through customs. 
Okay. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I feel like a little bit better, you know, (laughs) and you know, it's happening, but it's not on your body right now. Yeah. Or that was the plan. Yes. Yeah. And when we land, I go to the bathroom to take it off, put in my backpack. And he's like, oh, well, it's too late now. So he was never planning on taking these ever. And at this point I am just like riveting in fury. And I think like that's, but I wasn't going to flush them down. They weren't mine. You can't just throw down that amount of drugs. It's a lot of money. How much was it worth that you were carrying if you were carrying two kilos? I mean, I don't know what drugs cost in the wholesale and retail world. Oh my God, I don't even know. It's, but it's definitely like a pyramid scheme of <laughs> of how people get involved in it. Um, so hundreds of thousands of dollars, we don't flush down the airline toilet and then have people in St. Lucia coming after you. Right. Yeah, or worse, right? Like, I don't know. I didn't know. Yeah. So... I was just like, I just felt safe that I was there. And if I got like arrested at that point, I didn't even know the consequences because I didn't plan this. I didn't look up the risks, right? Right, of course. Um, so you get off the plane, you've still got your bike shorts on, so does he, and and how does this now unfold? So then we go through the first security checkpoint and, you know, they're, they're asking you questions and pretty simple answers and... Then they scribble a little number on that. Well, they don't anymore. This is like when they still scribbled the numbers and now it's just computerized. Yeah. Um, but it's still random numbers. So you don't know what they mean. So now that, now that I've gone through this checkpoint one, like I think he forgot that there was another checkpoint or something. Because then when we get to the last checkpoint, like we have our bags and you can see people with the signs, like welcoming people. But then there's one last person that it's like looks at that thing. And when they look yeah. at it, they, they told us to go right into the secondary. So they immediately separated us. Um, Again, I was just very controlled because I didn't want to be blamed for this, like botching this operation, like going out and botching it. And I wasn't, right? Like if I had like made a whole scene, it would have been different. But because, you know, I I did my best to just do what I could to do it safely, to (laughs) just get home safe. It wasn't like a whole scene. So it wasn't even like on TV or anything like that. Because I guess it happens all the time. Um, I guess. And so they separate you, take you into what? Like questioning rooms or or, or someplace? Yeah. And then they, well, they don't put you in questioning rooms. They It's actually pretty public. Like there's just different. Um, Areas. Yeah. They, but they'll, they'll separate you. And then you talk to, you'll each talk to a person. And then they go, they'll ask you questions. And they go through your suitcase. They'll ion scan your suitcase. And then the final question that they asked me was, okay, Miss O'Brien, like, we're going to do a physical search on you. And is there anything, like, you want to declare? And then I just looked at the floor, and I didn't say anything. and Because I knew that they knew, right? And I just... How do you think they knew? Did, did, did he phone this in? Or did somebody phone this in? Did somebody alert somebody that this was happening? So how, how did you know they knew? I'll never know. Yeah. I'll never know. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're looking at the floor, not answering the the question. And now what? And then they have to ask me again. And then that's when I looked up and looked him right in the eye and I said, yes. And so then I got arrested. Like I was placed under arrest and then I had to go to another room where they tested the drugs. And then I was formally arrested by the RCMP. And then I had to go to the local jail for the weekend. And then I still thought like, I felt like this big sense of relief, to be honest, because I was She's like, thank God I can, like, you know, explain, like, what happened. <laughs> right. I'm, at least I'm at home. I'm in Canada. I can, I can tell my story. What, what happened to him? 
Um, well, he actually got arrested. Did he get caught, in yeah. other words? Yeah, he was with me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but I was also very, very careful on what to say because, again, like, I didn't, still didn't know the risks, but I just knew that I was home safe in Canada and, like, that that was my biggest priority. So you're arrested and then, and then how, how does the story now continue? Uh, so then um, I have to go to jail for the weekend and... With these kinds of crimes, it's not like you can just phone a friend and, oh, can you come bail me out? It doesn't work like that. Um, you have to, for importing, you have to have a surety. So people that basically have family members, because you have to like go and live with someone because I was under house arrest okay. during the duration of the court. So, And that comes with a whole other set of responsibilities um, for the people that are doing this for you. And you chose your parents? Well, they, they chose me, yeah. Like, and I don't really think there was any other options. Right. Oh, my God. How did your parents... So who called your parents to say... They did. They did. So Emily's in jail and has been arrested for smuggling drugs. Yeah. And your parents showed up at the jail? Uh, they show, showed up at the courthouse on the Monday. And then the courthouse was Monday. And what happened at the courthouse? So over the course of the weekend, my dad had found a, like a lawyer who also uh, was there and knew what to do. And so I was granted bail at $50,000. Uh, it's not something that's paid, but they have to put it up in assets. So $50,000 off your house or something, right? So it's not like a cash, cash bail system. It's asset mm-hmm. bail. Yeah. And then you had to, I assume, go and live with your parents yeah, like I lived with my mom because, you know, they were going through their thing. So, but they were both still my assurities. So I could kind of live with both, but it was definitely a very challenging period. So I bet. And then, and then from there, what happened that they, there was a sentencing hearing, I guess, at some point. Uh, yeah, it was two and a half years later. So <laughs> um, during that two and a half years, we had to go to like meetings with lawyers. You know, I, I willingly went to programs that I needed to go into because I was, you know, I I spent a lot of time being angry and just feeling so misunderstood. And then I just decided I couldn't live like that anymore. It was just too long. And I knew that I was a good person. I knew that I'd spent a lot of my life, most of my life, pretty much every day, except for that one and maybe like 10 other ones when, you know, you do dumb things. But um, I knew for the most of my life, I was like a good person and I had good qualities. And so... Yeah, I was, I was just like ready to ready to figure out and and learn how this could help me change like my life for the better. Me. Yes, good for you. Absolutely fabulous. So two and a half years later, you go to a sentencing hearing. Um, where, where Hamilton? Um, the sentencing hearing is actually at the federal court in Brampton because it was a federal charge. And, yes, of course it was. And your lawyer is there. And so what happens? Um, I knew like the day that I was going to prison because it was my mom's birthday and we had spent the last two and a half years realizing that this came with, this kind of charge came with a mandatory minimum sentencing if you plead guilty. And I pled guilty very early in the case, but I still got the mandatory sentencing for that. So, and that was at the time it was two years like per kilogram essentially here or there. So, yeah. You had four years then. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you leave the courtroom and they take you to the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Hamilton. Uh, that's in Kitchener. 
Oh, excuse me. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that correction. But that's where they took you? Yes. Yeah. And so you had to spend four years there, Emily. Um, I spent four, my sentence was four years total. So the Canadian justice system, when you go to prison, there's multiple ways to serve your sentence. And so you have to do a certain amount percentage wise, no matter what. Um, so I did a year in until I could get day parole. I had to do that. And then day parole means you live in a halfway house until you can advance to your next level of security reduction, I guess. And that's full parole where, where you can live on your own. And so it was, if I understand correctly, in the halfway house that the business was born. So maybe you could you could tell us about that. When did the business hatch in, in your mind, in your heart, in your mind? It was inside prison that I met so many people that were kind of just feeling the same way, wanted to not be so misunderstood anymore, wanted for people to see that they were still a person and kind of help. I wanted to help change the stigma about the formerly incarcerated because just like myself, I knew that everyone is capable of being good, doing good and and helping others. So cooking was one of our favorite things and just sharing thoughts over meals and snacks and popcorn was a popular prison snack. And you know that I've always been very entrepreneurial. So it was um, during the Super Bowl game that we were having one of these meals and I loved popcorn and we would take different seasonings and just put random things on there. And I really thought about it. And I was like, maybe there's a, a way that I can create a business or like a social enterprise where I can hire people coming out of prison like myself and advocate for them as people, just as I advocate for myself in order to change the trajectory of those people when they come out of prison. And that was through popcorn. So it started in prison. <laughs> With the two spices being lemon, pepper, and dill, and everybody that you you sprinkled this stuff on top of the popcorn and everybody was like, wow, this is awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've obviously been very driven as an entrepreneur. I, I so believe that people are just wired as entrepreneurs right from the get-go. And I'd understood that before this happened, you went to the University of Guelph, but didn't have the requirements for nutrition or business, which is what you wanted to get into. So you ended up doing a, a bachelor's degree in international development, but now you're back into business and essentially nutrition food. Mm-hmm. So you're finding your way back to the passion. Yes. Okay. So now what happens in terms of you've decided this is going to be a thing, you've decided it can be something where you can hire people that are coming out of prison. And I actually have recently interviewed two gentlemen who are serving a life sentence at the main state prison in the United States. They are able to join me to make a recording via Zoom as long as there's a guard standing beside them. I can't see that. But they talk about that stamp that is placed on your head. Now, Maine has no parole. So these guys, at least so far, are never getting out. But they talk about how it's made to be virtually impossible to pick up and have any sort of a life without this branding on your head. Mm -hmm. And obviously like the Canadian system is very different than the U S system. But I know even just from applying for jobs or trying to apply for jobs, just while I was coming out on parole, that that was the thing. It doesn't matter. Right. That's the last question they ask you. And that's kind of the last time you'll ever talk to them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They just throw you, throw you away if you will. So how did this idea of your popcorn business, starting with this lemon, pepper, and dill experiment, which was so successful, how did it then become the business that it is today or starting to become the business that it is today? 
Uh, yeah, like it's definitely been a very long, long journey. And, you know, at, at the very beginning, the goal was to like, oh, I want to hire people. But then when you start a business, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that you could barely pay yourself for the first little bit. So we kind of, we hired um, a couple of people. I think that we've hired about 10 so far, like on and off. And now we're starting to rebuild that. But it was like, oh my gosh, I want to scale this so much more. So how can we grow it so that, you know, not only are we just hiring to help internally, but we are helping to change the policies of other corporations as well. So that's been kind of our main focus. And of mission-wise, I feel like the mission comes first. But growing the, the business, we actually rebranded in 2020 from the original name was Cons and Kernels, and now it's actually called Comeback Snacks. Because it was in prison that I took a survey of possible names. Cons and Kernels was the most popular one. But then when I actually came out after prison, I realized that that was like very alienating and kind of limited, mm-hmm. you know, because we're so much more than that, right? So that's why um, we changed it to Comeback Snacks. And 2019 was kind of our first year just building it, building it. We had a little commercial kitchen. And then I met a friend who took us on and let us use his grocery store kitchen and I would help them with their social media, kind of like a little barter system. And then we um, found like a, a manufacturing partner. So that's where we are. That's where we are now. And so today you have, are the employees 10 at this moment full time or do they come and go based on volume and demand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I would say it's it's been about 10 since we, 10 since we started. And then this one, some of them were employees and some of them are like contract basis as right. well. But um. But then also knowing this, I have, I've been able to like work with like the Ministry of Labor and, you know, the John Howard Society on the Fair Chances Coalition, right? So partnering with bigger corporations that have the ability to help us create change at a bigger scale by implementing fair chance hiring policies into their organizations. Amazing. So are you hiring people that are out of prison? Are you looking for people specifically who have a record in order to give them a second chance with your business? When we, yeah, when we do like, especially holiday season, absolutely. Yeah. We, that's our whole thing. Right. So it's, it's, um, it's not only people that have like, we've also worked with people that have come back from substance use and abuse. Right. So it's giving people a second chance. God bless you. Or a first one. Um, right? Or a first one. Absolutely. Now, lemon pepper dill was your foundational piece. How many flavors do you have now? Well, let's just talk about the product for a moment before we talk about your emotional profit and some of the interesting things that you're doing. Yeah. Um, So right now we have two savory flavors. One of them is triple cheese and the other one is lemon pepper dill, which were actually the two flavors that we built in prison. And then we have five caramel flavors. And those are the ones that you probably see, you know, in 7-Elevens and Farm Boy, all that. And then we have three seasonal caramel ones, which are um, gingerbread caramel, candy cane caramel, and nutcracker crunch. So, <laughs> yeah. So how how are you doing? You you own this 100% or have you sold off shares? I'm like... No, um, actually, I have a great business partner. He was a friend of mine for 10 years and I told him about this crazy idea and he wanted to help. So came on while I was still in prison as, you know, just helping out. And now he's uh, my partner full-time. Oh, that's fabulous. Congratulations. And I understand, you know, Peter Neal. Yeah. Peter Neal has been on Breaking Brave. He was one of 
the first maybe 10 or 12 guests that we had when we started this podcast. Amazing. And he speaks so highly of you and what you've done. It's it's amazing. Oh, well, I speak very highly of him too. So yeah. <laughs> I hope he hears Incredible. that. <laughs> so your position, your mission is all about supporting rehabilitation and reintegration programs such as the Renaissance Foundation and the Elizabeth Fry Society. Are you, is that correct as well as maybe other things? Yeah, that's like, we have, we have four pillars to our mission work. One of them is, yeah, indirect, like direct and indirect hiring. So that's within or working with other organizations. Um, number two is policy work. So I've worked on Bill C-5 with the federal government, which removed mandatory minimums. And, and I've, I work with um, Ministry of Labor, Ontario government. That's the second pillar. The third pillar is doing like things like this, podcast interviews. So just spreading the word um, wherever it can go. And the fourth one is, yes, we're partnering with organizations, doing fundraisers and leading workshops or helping out in, in any way that I can to their clients. And where can we find, where can people, I'll, I'll call it out now, where can people find by purchase the product, your products, because mouths are watering as you're naming off specifically those uh, seasonal holiday snacks. Sure, yeah. Um, so our website, comebacksnacks.com, has a locations tab on it. You can find our listings there. You can buy it from our website directly. And yeah, that's or Scotiabank Arena, Farm Boy, 7-Elevens. Um, and if you can't uh, locate it, people can just DM the social media account and we'll help them out. Excellent. And are you outside of Canada? You are in the U.S. as well, I believe? Yeah, we're in um, Yankee Stadium, Camden Yards, um, and we are part of a number of subscription boxes that are in the U.S. as well. So, But that's a whole other beast. So we're, we're trying to grow the right way and not just get too crazy, right? You want to you want to still enjoy what you do and stick to the thing that matters, and that is the work around um, reducing stigma from for incarcerated individuals. And how is it going with respect to that in terms of the lobbying and the work that you're doing in those arenas? How, how can you talk to me a little bit about what you've been able or what you plus other folks have been able to achieve in that area that has made you feel hopeful? Yeah, um, I've worked very closely with Pam Damoff. So she's the MP for um, the Burlington and Oakville jurisdiction. And so the mandatory minimums was part of my sentencing right? Like I had to do that amount of time, but prison isn't necessarily the best for people that, you know, are just in a really shitty situation, right? It's um, often they cause more harm than good. These very lengthy sentences, they're very expensive to the taxpayer and they, and people don't necessarily come out better. They often come out worse. So Bill C-5 working on that gives discretion back to the judges to determine the sentencing that they want to give. And then working with um, former minister, Monty McNaughton, he developed the Skills Development Fund. And part of that was the Second Chances Initiative, which is a fund where businesses can apply. And if they want to like implement fair chance hiring, second chance hiring policies into their environments, then the government will support that. And so, yeah, it's been great working at both those levels. Good for you. Congratulations. And I've got a quote up here about if you want your business to provide you with meaning and personal satisfaction, it has to connect your past to your future. I was riveted by that. 
how does that work for you, Emily? I mean, where did that brilliant comment come from as I quote it from you on my wall? So I built this whole thing because I had this lived experience, right? And there's a lot of people that will tell you, don't ever look back. But if we never look back, how will we ever learn? And how will we keep that passion if we never look back? You have to look back and realize how you learned, how you helped others, and how how certain elements aren't going to happen again, right? So bringing that into comeback snacks, there are going to be challenges. There are going to be stressful times. If I didn't look back and was like, oh, everything's hunky-dory all the time, how could I even learn from that? So that's what that really means. It's like, take everything that happens, no matter what. And if you want it to actually make you a better person, you have to acknowledge that that it was there. And that's how I live my life every single day. Good for you. I would imagine the audience is sitting on the edge of their chair about the gentleman that bought the tickets and took you to St. Lucia. So without naming names, obviously we're not going to do that, but what happened to him in terms of being charged, going to prison? Is he out? What What's going on? I just, I need to close that off because I'm sure people are like, well, wait, wait, we now know what happened to Emily, but what happened to him? Yep. Uh, So when we both got arrested, um, my lawyer separated our cases immediately. So at the end of the day, he had the same amount that I had, and that was the mandatory minimum. So he got the same amount of time. Okay. Okay. And, and Emily, what, um, what does bravery mean to you, given that we've got to ask the signature question on Breaking Brave? What does bravery mean to you? Ah, just knowing that it's going to be hard doing it anyway, knowing that you might not be right, but doing it anyway, and knowing that even if you're so wrong and you make so many mistakes, you can handle it and take ownership of those things. Excellent. Thank you. What's next for your business? What's next for you? What's next for your business? I I don't mean, let's talk about your strategic long-term plan. I, I guess I'm just saying from your heart, from your gut, what would you like to have happen in the next couple years for you and your business? Um, I think ideally I want to keep building, I want to build programs for people that are actually in prison, you know, entrepreneurship programs or even just confidence programs, things that I did in prison to help me get through and, and learn. So that's one thing that I want to do. And eventually I want to start like, um, this is definitely down the road, but, um, you know, some sort of fund where people that are starting want to start a business can access capital because uh, often coming out of, if you have a record, you can't get certain grants for things. Right. And I think there is a lot of untapped talent that is in people that people have that have been justice involved. And are you still in touch with any of the people that you hung out with in prison? They, you talked about their dreams, your dreams, they sampled your um, lemon pepper and dill popcorn the night of the Super Bowl. Are those women somehow still in your life? Yeah, 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 for sure. You have this bond, right, when you're in there. So, you know, of course. And like I said, you don't look back. You you harness that and you harness those friendships that you have because that's one thing that you'll be bonded for life. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been a very super brave story and a super important story for the world to understand. How can people find you, follow you social media-wise, website-wise? Let's just do that big call out right now so that they know how to connect with you if they'd like to. Absolutely. So our website is comebacksnacks.com and our social media is at comebacksnacks. And my personal Instagram is at emz at ems.obrien. So there we go. Fantastic. Fantastic.
Well, thank you so much, Emily. I appreciate your time. I know how busy you are. And you are a brave inspiration in changing the whole prison realities, reform, the way people should be looked at before prison, during prison, and after prison. So good for you. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you in person soon. Thank you. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. For updates between episodes, I'd encourage you to join my mailing list, which you can do at either MarilynBarefoot.com or BreakingBrave.show. At most once a month, at least once a quarter, you'll receive an update on the latest resources, topics, and information I've found either super helpful or amazingly impactful. That's it for now. See you next time.